Our reading is taken from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 to 8, and it can be found on page 1018. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> we can imagine the scene, can't we? Jesus and a group of disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. And I remember probably 15 years ago now, a group of us sitting in exactly the same place, having a picnic, falafel and pita bread. And it was a lovely day. And for Jesus and the disciples, as they sat there, watching over the scene as we did 15 years ago, we see the Golden Dome, but they would have seen the temple, the second temple glittering in the sun. And in front of them would have been the largest, most impressive building for hundreds of miles, as dominant as the pyramids in Egypt or the Colosseum in Rome, gold and white marble, the pride of the nation, the place where God dwelt among them, the focus of their worship and nationhood, as iconic as Big Ben or the Eiffel Tower, and as permanent, they thought, as the pyramids of Egypt. When the prophet Isaiah had his vision of the Lord, he saw him sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. The temple was the place where the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments, had come to rest. At the altar, there were daily sacrifices to sustain the relationship between God and his people. And the temple had outer courts into which people from all nations should come and pray. And at its center, behind a curtain, was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And there, the covenant between God and his people was restored. In the temple was access to God's throne, the mercy seat, and there was the living presence, the glory of God. But the temple was also the place where Jesus challenged the authority of the day. 
throwing the money changers out of the courts of the Gentiles, and he spent time teaching there as he came to Jerusalem for Passover. And here, as they sat looking over this remarkable building and all it represented, he tells them it's going to be reduced to rubble and that nothing will be left. The unthinkable will happen. John's Gospel tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And for John, the hour of Jesus' death is the hour when Jesus is glorified. The glory of God will not be in the temple, but in the cross and the resurrection. And in the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is seen as our high priest who, at the cross, tears open the great curtain in the temple that separates the holy of holies from the faithful. In God's heavenly dwelling place, like the high priest on earth, Jesus enters the holy of holies, and having made the sacrifice that atones for sin, he opens the way for us to follow in his footsteps into the very presence of God. For the followers of Jesus, the earthly temple in Jerusalem no longer matters. If it's destroyed, nothing's lost. What matters now is God's heavenly dwelling place, and that can never be destroyed. And the way to God's heavenly throne now lies open for each one of us whose heart longs for the presence of God. But for the Christian, for us, there's now a temple on earth, but it's no longer in Jerusalem, is it? It's in every human being who's filled with the Holy Spirit. As 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? But hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because the disciples knew nothing of this as they sat on the Mount of Olives that day. The events of Easter, of Jesus' death and resurrection to life, hadn't yet happened. And all they could understand was that Jesus was telling them that the focus of their religious life and nationhood was going to be destroyed. The security of the temple was to be no more. And their reaction was probably the same that we would have. When, Lord? When's this going to happen? What day? What time? There's a security in knowing the future, isn't there? We like to plan for our future. But of course, as each of us is only too aware, we cannot know what lies ahead of us, what road we will travel. But I wonder if the apostles who hadn't already been martyred looked back to that day some 40 years later when the great temple was destroyed by the Roman army or when between the third, between a third and a half of the Jewish population was slaughtered by the Romans during the five years of the revolt from 63 AD or when they heard of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius or saw the Roman cruelty and mass suicide of nearly a thousand Jewish people at Masada in 73 AD. I wonder whether at last they understood what Jesus had been teaching them that day on the Mount of Olives. 
that the road ahead would be tough, very tough. It wouldn't always be the easy choice, but that they could trust him. Did they remember, I wonder, his words, don't be alarmed, as the events he predicted unfolded around them? We're fortunate, aren't we, that we're not facing death for our faith, like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in various parts of our world. But we live in troubled times. And we've already remembered this morning the events in Paris. And a few weeks ago, the downing of the Russian plane, the genocides, troubled times indeed. And compared to some people in our world, our lives here are relatively comfortable. But our lives aren't always as easy as we would like. Sometimes times are extremely hard, and I know families whose bravery and faith in the face of suffering and grief is beyond my comprehension. But like a lot of folk here, there have been several times over the years when I've prayed, Lord, this isn't a road I expected to travel. This isn't the comfortable, easy journey that I thought I was going to have. Instead, it's rocky and hard and narrow and difficult and painful. And if I'm honest, I don't like this road very much. Please, can I have another one? This isn't what I expected. But, and I don't say this lightly, of this we can be confident, that as we travel onward, we do not journey alone. We travel in the confidence that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, giving us hope, guiding our steps. We travel in the confidence that Jesus intercedes for us at the throne of God. We travel trusting that God is leading us and that he equips us with all we need for the journey, however hard or unexpected. And he gives us hope, a certainty that he is with us and will see us through. The words of Jesus on that day still echo in our ears. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Those of us who have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren even must wonder what sort of world they'll grow up in. In 1859, Charles Dickens wrote these opening lines to A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. These words could have been written for today, couldn't they? We see all the events our passage from Marx talks about. Wars, rumours of wars, earthquake, famine. And these words of Jesus apply as much today as they did 2,000 years ago. But remember, he also said to his disciples then, and he says to us now, do not be alarmed. Or as the message version puts it, keep your head and don't panic. <laughs> Sometimes when I get home from work, um, 
I put the television on to just sit and chill at something innocuous, and it's Dad's army most nights. And those words remind me of Corporal Jones <laughs> running around in a flap saying, don't panic, nobody panic. <laughs> but there's a deeper truth to those words. It's not easy living with uncertainty, is it? It requires courage and faith. But this is what Jesus is saying to us through this passage. Yes, at the close of this age, there will be difficult times. But if elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that people will be going around their normal lives when that last day comes. All through history, folk have looked to the dark circumstances of this world and tried to predict the return of Jesus. But we do not know when Jesus will return. As Matthew 24, 26 says, no one knows the day or the hour. Only our Father in heaven knows. And although we don't know when Jesus will return, we can take the teaching he gave to his disciples on that day on the Mount of Olives and apply it to the events in our lives. Don't be alarmed, he tells us. When what's happening around us seems to shake the foundations of our lives, because our foundations aren't in earthly buildings or possessions, but our foundation, our security, is in Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that nothing can shake that foundation. As Romans 8, 38 and 39 say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whatever happens in life, whatever happens in the world around us, we can rest in the knowledge that our hope is not on earthly things. Our hope is not the wishing or desiring of human emotion. But as disciples of Christ, our hope is solid, concrete, because it's grounded in the word of God. And we know, as Hebrews 6 tells us, God cannot lie. And because of the hope we have, we can receive and rest in his peace, even in the darkest of times. I was challenged at a communion service earlier this week. You know the bit where the service leader says, the peace of the Lord be always with you, and we all respond back and also with you. And then we get up and we shake hands and wish each other peace. Well, as I was making my way around the dozen or so who were there, trying to make sure I hadn't missed anyone, I realized something. That I'd lost sight of the depth of the significance there is in peace. And there were a few folk there, including me, who really needed to know his peace. And instead of scurrying around, trying to fit as many handshakes into the allotted time as possible, instead, I needed to receive the peace of God that was being ministered to me by the others present. 
to receive the gift of God's peace as people said the words of peace to me. And I was reminded of Philippians 4, where it says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we can be confident and secure in the midst of our uncertain world. And to end with Romans 15, verse 13, which says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.